Jeff here from Startup Sack. At our most recent Startup Sack happy hour on May 22nd, our featured veteran startup founder was John Koss, CEO of Pondera Solutions. We recorded it again and then pick up with John giving a brief background in launching and running tech startups before fielding questions from the audience. Take a listen. Take it away, John. All right, great. Thanks, Jeff. Hey, everybody. Hi. So I do way better with questions than I do talking. So um, I think you guys wanted me to just give a little bit of background on, you know, how this all happened to me. Um, so I'll give you just a really quick background, but then I'd love to have questions. Um, so I started the company called uh, Pondera Solutions back in 2011. This is my fourth uh, startup that I've been involved in. I was a long-time uh, tech person just right out of college and after a miserably failed attempt at being a professional tennis player. Um, it was mostly due to injuries. It had nothing to do with lack of talent or anything like that. Uh, hey, you're not tall enough? <laughs> Once they got those big rackets, it all changed. I did play in the wood, wooden racket era. Um, but... Uh, yeah, so I've had this is my fourth startup after uh, leaving uh, Oracle, the nine years at Oracle. Um, I just felt like I had done enough for the man, um, in that case, Larry Ellison, and <laughs> I was close enough, I think, to some technology that I started to see some opportunities um, to start some businesses. The first one that I started was really more of a boutique consulting company because it was just easier. You know, I, I left when I knew that I had a uh, I think the, my first client was like a $25,000 a month consulting contract. So what ended up happening when I did that was I just sort of created myself a job, and the job got bigger and a little bit more profitable, but I found the business was very hard to scale, so I sold that business. Um, the second one was a services business um, that I started, which was more of just um, you know either reselling product or delivering technology services. Um, I got bought out of that one, so that one's continuing to go on. But, you know, in the services business, that's a tough business. Um, and even the valuations are a little bit hard, maintaining a bench, all of those types of things. So it really wasn't my passion. Uh, like, you're a lot better at it than I am. I told Buddy he's not allowed to ask any questions. I haven't seen him in years. <laughs> he's actually really good at it. I wasn't, so I exited out of that one. And then the third business I started I don't talk about because uh, that one didn't work out too well, which I think is probably the case for most people. But back in um, 2011, I was actually, I had sold my other business, and I was at Google, and um, I had a colleague there that was showing me some of the new technologies that they had. And they had this ability now to rent computer space, which was really cool, the cloud, and also the ability to rent, you know, analytics. And I'm an old analytics person. I came out of the you know, I was a technical person many years ago. And I was literally sitting here, and they wanted me to do some consulting work for them. And this thought came to me that, my gosh, this thing that had bothered me for a long time, this problem of fraud, waste, and abuse in large government programs like Medicaid systems and unemployment insurance systems. It, just these, it was a really big problem, but it hadn't been addressed by, you know, large companies. And this ability to rent computer space and this massive computing power and not have to buy all these servers and everything and then apply and rent these analytics gave me the opportunity to start a company without investing a whole bunch in technology. Instead, I could invest in like subject matter experts and people like that and then just apply this technology to it. 
So I had this plan that I was going to get really rich in like a year, and then as it turned out, um, it didn't quite work out that way. But I started the company in 2011, literally a week after I was at Google, and then I spent two years trying to build a product. So I know a lot of people talk about this MVP and minimally viable product, is that what it stands for? So I should have thought about that at the time because I wanted to build an actual product um, and spent two years doing it, made every mistake possible. Um, But in 2013, um, after thinking that I was going to shoot the company a bunch of times because I put a lot of money into it by this time, Mm -hmm. um, we ended up with some pretty significant breakthroughs on what we were able to do. And you have to remember the companies that I was competing with, and some of you may work for them, so I don't mean to insult them, but it was, you know, companies like IBM and Accenture and people like that. And I was just a couple of guys out in Sacramento that had an idea. So we had to really have some real breakthroughs to be successful. Um, I think that happened in 2013. We started, we got our first customer in 2013. One of my tips for entrepreneurs, don't make sure your customer's not in your backyard in case it doesn't work. So (laughs) ours was in Iowa, (laughs) um, which is still a customer, by the way, all these years later. Um, And then from, you know, right after we got that customer, it was interesting um, here in California, CNN did a big story on uh, the California Medicaid problem and all the problems that were occurring there. And they actually ran it for five nights in a row. It was a big disaster for the state. So they rushed out a bid, you know, who can help us with fraud, waste, and abuse here in California. Um, And we bid, and IBM and a couple other companies bid, and we got selected for that. And that's the biggest Medicaid program in the country. So they're still a customer of ours as well. And that just really changed things for us. So today we're in... I think nine states and about 40 programs. Um, we've been growing pretty pretty rapidly. Um, our headquarters is in Folsom now. We just moved into a new office about three weeks ago. Got like triple the space we were in so that we could grow, and then we moved in and, and we're full. It's just, which <laughs> is really difficult because you know it's hard to it's hard to plan the growth. I'm, obviously, I'm terrible at it. And we have another um, office in Florida. Um, where we do a lot of work. So what we do today, you know, basically we're 100% working with government, but we're looking at getting into commercial space. Um, our government customers give us their data. So if it's a Medicaid system, they give us their um, provider and medical data. They give us the people that are actually in the system, and then they give us um, all the data on, um, you know, the medical claims. So we deal with very sensitive information. We take that data and we run it through a set of prediction algorithms, and then we identify highly likely fraud, waste, and abuse, and then we provide that back to the state on a regular basis or whoever our customer is, and then they go out and prosecute. Um, we have saved hundreds of millions of dollars for our clients. Um, that's been validated. Um, many, many um, indictments, um, criminal prosecutions, we're really proud of the work we do because it's not just about money. The people that are ripping off these systems are often very organized, large crime rings, um, stealing tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars. That money, of course, is not used for good. Um, they, they put it back into human trafficking, uh, funding of terrorism, gun running, some really terrible things. So we're actually paying people to do these things back in our community. So we're very proud of the work that we do. Um, we did take a f- uh, financial investment in June of last year, so we um, we spent a long time, and you guys will probably have questions about that, 
um, looking at capital, whether we wanted to do capital at all. We were growing, we were profitable, um, but there were some reasons that we did that. So June of last year, we took an investment from a company called Seren uh, Capital with um, actually Impact was a co-investor. We don't really talk about how much it was. The only thing we say is, um, I always get my fingers figures wrong. Uh, it was figures. over $10 million, however many figures that is. How many is that? Eight. 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 Thank you. <laughs> we used it in our promo. So. Okay. <laughs> and part of that was um, secondary shares and primary shares. People know the difference between that. So like primary means if they buy primary shares, it goes right into the business. So it goes into the business's bank account. Secondary goes to the owner's. Um, so we did a partial primary, partial secondary, which allowed me and um, some of the other owners to uh, take some risk off the table, put some money into their own personal bank accounts, but also money went into business so we can grow the business. So that's where we are today. That's my history. And everything was perfectly smooth and awesome and <laughs> no problems. Of course. Never needed any guys like this. I heard it talking about, like, you know, leasing and all that stuff. I'm like, jack, 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 <laughs> all of those issues. So hopefully that's a good background, but love to take any... We'll open it up to questions. Yeah. Yeah. You said you use predictive analytics and mm-hmm. identifying this stuff. Mm-hmm. Is any of that behavioral, psychological-based, or is it just kind of pattern-based? Yeah, that's a really good question. So um, it's actually what I think we do best is behavioral analytics. Okay. Um, because we were competing with a bunch of people... We, we knew that in order to compete, we had to do something differently. And we compete with a lot of services companies that would bring in doctors and financial accountants, and they have, you know, 150,000 employees, and we weren't sure. going to compete with them. Then we were competing with technology companies that were just doing, you know, pattern recognition and machine mm-hmm. learning and things like that. So for us to find our niche, we really went into the behavioral side. And one of the things I'm a big fan of is hiring people from adjacent markets into uh, like our market. So I hired some people, like we got some PhDs from um, UC Davis that were learning in mind sciences, PhDs, I don't even know what that is. Sure. Because I'm a techie. <laughs> but it was all about how people think, and one of them had done his work on how kids start to cheat in school and, you know, how they learn. And, yeah, it just it has nothing to do with fraud, really, but it it's about behaviors. Behavior. Yeah. So, you know, our goal, we have this thing called... Project Whack-A-Mole, which is when when a bad person does something and you stop them from doing that, mm-hmm. and you can do that just with you know technology and straight prediction models, they don't become good. They just find a new way to rip you off. And what what that is is based on behaviors. Sure. So what's the most likely thing to do? So we started to build these behavioral models, and our goal is to literally be able to go to our clients and say, okay, you stopped this particular fraud trend this is where they're going to show up, so go over and wait for them. And that's really just based on behavior. So it's fascinating. And when you have massive amounts of data, so we're now, as a company, we're, we have 34% of all of the country's Medicaid beneficiaries, which is a huge number here in California alone. There's 14 million. So we have all this data coming in. Sure. And you get into this virtual cycle of you get the data, then we build the models, then we get more data, then the models get better, and you just sort of go like this, and we can really start to recruit some interesting talent. That's a super long answer to your question. No, that's great. great. (laughs) And I'm not even drinking, so. (laughs) So, um, John, since you first started the company, there's been amazing advances in artificial intelligence and data science and machine learning. Yeah. 
How? Just don't ask me about blockchain, because I don't know the answer. <laughs> 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 has, has your technology significantly changed over the last seven years based yeah. on advancements in that? Yeah, totally. I think this is one of the neat things about being a startup is that um, we, we don't have a technology that we have to sell. And, and we compete against these really big companies that have this technology that they have to sell. And it's like an anchor on them a lot of times. And, you know, I saw this when I had my other consulting company, and I would do, my customers were IBM and Deloitte and guys like that, and IBM would have all this technology they got to bring in, or Oracle, or SAP, or whatever. And for us, I, I don't care what technology we use. So, you know, we're out to solve a problem. And the problem is fraud, waste, and abuse. If that takes people, if it takes third-party data sets, if it takes some new technology to do that, then we'll just go get it and rent it. And everybody's going to sell it to us. They're happy to provide it to us, you know, because they make money off of it. So when we first started, we worked with Google, was our, our big partner. And the great advantage there was, you know, I'm John from Sacramento. Nobody wanted to meet with me. But Google would bring me in and say, hey, we have this innovative partner and, you know, they're using some of our, we used something called Prediction API of theirs, which was this multi-model um, prediction thing and, you know, a couple of their other technologies. And that got us in the door. But since then, we actually completely shifted um, and we use a variety of technologies. And the other kind of cool thing is when you're a cloud provider, so everything we do is uh, cloud, nobody cares what the technologies are. All they care about is what the results are. So we can grab all these technologies and provide really great results. And no, I never, nobody ever asks us what the technology is because we don't go see tech people. I, I haven't seen a tech person in years. I wouldn't know what to say to them. I mean, because <laughs> they, they hate us, right? Because we come in and we say, you know, we're going to provide the solution to you. You don't get to buy servers. You don't get to buy hardware. You don't get to make your data center bigger. All of, all of these things. You know, we just go into the business people. But completely different technologies. And, and we're constantly looking at new ones. I talk a lot about our clients and our, my employees. I say, you know, we're not a technology company. We're an innovation company. And innovation is a constant thing. We're always trying to reinvent ourselves. And I, I think that's the only way we're going to stay ahead of the game. They should be asking you, though. Yeah. Well, you know what they do? A lot of them ask us about security, <clears throat> um, which is uh, obviously um, something that they ought to ask about. On the technology side, um, it's always about scalability. And, you know, that type of thing. And, you know, my answer to that is, well, you know, we run four out of the top ten largest Medicaid programs in the country now, and the Medicaid programs have the largest amount of data. So, you know, we're importing billions of records um, and massive data sets so we can scale. Um, and then it's just about results. So they ask us, what's our ROI? What are, we gonna, what are you going to find for us? And that's it. So we really turn it away from technology. But we love the technology we use. No, you didn't want a question, but I got a softball for you. <laughs> so, uh, yes, no softball. <laughs> no, so so uh, 100 years ago, I worked for EDS, and we had a, a program. We ran California Medicaid, and we had a program called SURS, Surveillance yeah. and Utilization Review. And we had identified the potential probable fraud yep. uh, items, and the the barrier, the hurdle was prosecution. It would just it would die on the prosecution. Is that getting better? Um, somewhat. Um, by the way, that was like, you know, Pondera point two, okay? <laughs> when it, you know, somebody asked about behavioral, like the CERT, what a lot of the CERT systems did was they looked at discrete transactions, right? And like a lot of systems do, for the most part. And they would say, does this transaction look like it's a potentially fraudulent transaction? And they would flag it. And 
you know, what we try to do is look at, because behaviors are committed over time. So everything that we do is more temporal based, and we're looking for these behaviors. So it's sort of, you know, we consider ourselves a SERS 2.0. Prosecution's always been a real problem. I'll give you some good examples and bad examples. But what we did, rather than just be a tech company, we went out and hired a bunch of, I still hire half my people from government. We have former FBI agents. Uh, we have former um, law enforcement officers, Medicaid fraud control unit captains, lieutenants, and things like that to solve this problem. So the answer was we wanted to give analytics with context because the context was necessary for the prosecution. So you know, rather than just saying this looks like it has a 78.635% chance of being fraudulent, which a lot of the tech companies would do, we would go in and say this looks like fraud and here's how we recommend you actually prosecuting this case and what your likelihood of prosecuting this case would be. Um, so we saw the prosecutions go up dramatically when we did that. We also decided to build out a case management system so you know, we could start to track what types of analytics were leading the prosecutions. Then we would focus on those analytics. Um, but it's still a frustrating thing. So I'll give you an example. We, we busted a case in Iowa. This was an unemployment insurance fraud. This is how creative these guys get. There was two guys out of Georgia that set up a business in Kansas that was that then hired people in Iowa. The, bu- the business was completely fraudulent. It was a fake business. Um, but it, it was hard to tell that it was fake business from the outside. So they hired a bunch of people, then they laid them off, and then the unemployment insurance claims came in for the layoffs. Well, the claims were being made by fake identities, stolen identities, 20 bucks off, off the web. Um, they were also working with a real estate broker in Iowa so that the checks were being sent to foreclosed houses and for sale houses so no one was there to pick up the checks. So they would just follow the mail around. And then they had a guy at, um, are we in the Wells Fargo? We're next door to Wells Fargo. <laughs> they had a guy at Wells Fargo and they were using um, to launder the money. Um, so it was a very complex ring, right? And our system found this um, in a number of ways, and um, our client was very excited about that and went to prosecute, and they said, well, it's not enough. It's like $15,000, and they said, well, that's because we caught them on like the third day that they were operating the business using the system. And they said, well, we don't prosecute unless it goes over a certain dollar amount. And great. Yeah, so, too good. so too well, good and my client said, well, we should, then we're just going to start letting them run. What's that dollar amount? What'd you hit and then, yeah, and then we'll hit that afterwards. And then it, literally like two months later, I was in Massachusetts talking to them about it, and they're like, those guys hit us too. And, you know, they were hitting every state. You don't set up a fake business and just go after one program or one state. You exploit that across lots of them. So, you know, that continues to be a problem. Yeah. But, you know, we're also working cases. The largest one we're working with today, we're supporting our client working with federal law enforcement. Um, that's a $250 million a year fraud ring. Um, over many, many businesses, um, that money is really being used for terrible things. Um, and, you know, obviously there's, you know, a little bit more eager to prosecute on things like that. A question back. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, more interest in the business side of things. Mm-hmm. And um, I was talking to someone earlier. I said, you know, it's hard to believe when you look around all these things, it starts with one guy, an idea. It's yeah. good to know that that's how you started this business. But um, you mentioned in 2013 there's some major breakthroughs. So can you kind of explain to us what that was like? How did you make those critical decisions? Yeah. Sure. I was forced to, I guess, because we weren't doing doing it the other way. Um, yeah, you know, 
so it was. Uh, I, I did just have an idea in 2011, right? And um, I think we all get hit with these ideas. Yeah. And my thing was, you know, I'm not going to part time it. I'm going to go full time, and I'm going to put everything I have into this idea because I think it's a good idea. And you know, we spent two years um, and got fortunate in some ways. We actually had the state of Florida um, become a, a beta partner for us because they liked our approach to doing some new things. And Florida has a massive fraud problem. Florida's the home of fraud, like in the country, identity theft, all that kind of stuff. It's just, it's, it's really bad. So they provided us with their Medicaid data set. And because um, they liked the approach that we were taking. But the thing that I found, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs did this, is I thought that the, all the value was in this new technology that we had and you know, that now I could analyze like billions of records in seconds, whereas you know, when I was at Oracle, we used to always have to worry about scaling up. And you know, I remember I helped put in the um, inventory system in California for um, DMV for plates and stickers. And it was, you know, oh, God, there's so many stickers and so many plates. It was just... And that all went away. So I thought I can just take this computing power and use these old methods of finding fraud, like a very top-down approach of identify what a bad guy looks like and then apply it to this data set and this massive computing power will run through it really quickly and I'll be way more effective. So we did this, um, I don't want to call it a bake-off, but almost like a benchmark against what Florida was already using and what we came up with. And after about eight months of doing sort of a traditional approach with new technology, we found out that we were about 10% better than what they were currently getting, which might sound good if you're you know, a big established company, but nobody was going to work with us if we were 10% better when we were like four people. So you know, we, that's when I went to some of these adjacent guys and said, okay, we need to, it's not about the technology. It's about a new approach that can use this technology. It's kind of like you know, the old Intel thing, like you can't build a application based on technology that's available today. You have to do it based on you know, technology that's going to be available in the future. And so we basically said people that have been fighting this problem today are just trying to do technology and make that the real lever. I need people that are outside of it that can now come in and have a brand new approach. And you know, I remember I was back in Baltimore with a couple of these guys that a few little data scientist guys and um, some learning and mind scientist guys and just said, forget everything we did. I'm, I'm going to have to fold up the company if we can't figure out a better way to do this. And it has to be a completely new approach. So that's what I called my bucket theory, where I took some people that were like experts in um, prediction modeling. I had an expert in fraud. I had an expert in um, uh, learning and mind sciences and behavioral sciences. And I threw them all in a bucket and said, here's what I'm trying to solve. I'm not going to tell you how to solve it because I don't know how to. But you guys, I know, know how to. So just figure it out. And it was really ugly. So they fought and argued. <laughs> but, like, you know, four months later, we got the results out of that group. And we were 80%, 100% better than anything these guys had seen before. And that's when I knew we had it. So just summarize that real quick. In your ninth inning, like pulling your hair out, just threw it to a bunch of consultants and just said, "They were employees." Well, <laughs> what would but, I want to call them? But, yeah, yeah. Um, it was. Yeah, I mean, it's, I'll take a little credit in that. You know, I had some ideas on the approach, sure, but the execution of that approach really was um, 
you know, like of the two years that we spent developing the product, 95% of the progress was in the last six months. And if I had it to do all over again, that's kind of a warning that I would have for people. I think there's a real tendency to go, I'm going to do things the way it was done before and then maybe take advantage of new technology and it's going to make me that much better. And I don't think that happens. And I still try to run a company that way today. Like, I've done a lot of, like, design thinking and this type of thing. And I think that's great if you guys do design thinking. But I also think that, you know, when you do very customer-centric, you know, development and listen to your customer on what they want, they also set the price point. You know, you're maybe incrementally better than what they have. Because just like I was trying to apply technology, you know, in the same way, customers tend to look at something and go, okay, well, I'm doing this today, and this will be a little bit better. And I still think you have to come from really far out of space with a very disruptive idea mm-hmm. in order to really, you know, really deliver value. Yeah. There are some so what was this thing that you came up with that, that made up of the 95% of the business? Yeah, I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) (laughs) But I'll tell you, it's it's like the exact opposite. You know, what we really did find out was that that the technology and the ability to run these massive data sets through quickly allowed us to, instead of doing what I would call like a top-down approach, identifying a bad guy and then coming down, it it let us go start from the bottom and analyze behaviors over all of these different data sets and then come up. And what we found was, you know, we started to find some previously completely unknown fraud schemes and trends, and not just anomalies, but real behaviors associated with them that, you know, they just didn't even know were existed in their programs and were ripping them off over time. And, you know, doing this bottoms-up approach as opposed to top-down was, was pretty dramatic change. Supervised versus unsupervised. Yeah, we use, certainly we use both of them, Yeah. Have your customers been open to giving you success percentages? Yeah, that's a good question. It's really hard. Um, I I would love, I had this dream of having like a counter on our website, like, you know, McDonald's when they used to put, right? 33 billion hamburgers sold. Well, you said 250 million a year, I mean. Yeah, I mean, we we would love to do that. So we talk in um, sort of aggregate about some of the things, the last, you know, sort of numbers we looked at, we'd identified over $10 billion in, um, you know, highly likely fraud, and our customers had collected over $700 million. Um, and then there's a prevention side, which is very difficult to talk about. We, a lot of our customers will not um, come out and say what we found, because that is, shows that for years before we were there, all of that was occurring. But some of them have gone on record. Um, so we've had some, you know, in a Medicaid program, in a particular specialty that said, you know, we, in the first 12 months we were operating, they took out 30% of the providers, had, uh, you know, 40 prosecutions and about $200 million a year out of the program. Um, you know, so we've had, you know, dramatic numbers. The ROI on something like that is it's, it's actually kind of embarrassing. It shows what a bad business person I am because our pricing probably should have been higher. But um, it's... Uh, it's tough to, from like, it's a marketing dream for like our PR company, the stuff we do, but getting the permission to talk about it is very difficult. Yeah. Also, it's hard to predict, I would imagine, how much you're going to save them until after the fact. Right? Yeah, it is. I mean, there's, there's benchmarks. There's benchmarks for everything these days. And, you know, government's talked about like if you collect a dollar, you probably prevented $9 and that type of thing. So, you know, then you can start looking at the dollars. But you also have to remember, in my case, for government, it's not their money. 
So it's really less about money than it is about compliance, than it is about people who care about safety. Because where I work, um, my sweet spot, and it sounds terrible, but it's true, is where large amounts of money come together with vulnerable populations. So those are the people that really get taken advantage of, whether it's um, you know, mentally disabled, elderly, um, homeless, you know, people like that are the ones that are most likely to be defrauded. And, um, yeah, you know, so there are people that actually care about that, fortunately, and those are usually the people that that's more of a driving factor than the actual ROI. So, but that's probably unique to me. Some people in the back have questions. questions. Yeah. My question's on um, interest in the company yeah. and attracting talent. I mean, all of a sudden you want to have some sort of startup one day where we have an idea and we want to have people around us. When you were starting up your startup businesses, how did you keep the interest in the company fair and how did you attract talent by having the right talent to people around you but also doling out the ownership of the company or fair payment or whatever for the company? Yeah. Yeah, so, um, so yeah, I want to make sure I understand it. So early on, how did I attract people to come with me? And then how did I compensate them as well? So attracting people and then compensating for the business. Like let's say, for example, all of us in here have a great idea. Yeah. How do we attract the right people to build the rocket ship and go all with us? To the yeah. Top yep. So, um, yeah, like now it's really easy because, you know, the fact that we're – that like in Medicaid, that we have 34% of the you know transactions coming through. Anybody that's interested in fraud, Medicaid wants to come work for us. Um, you know, back in 2011 through 2014, it wasn't quite like that. So this this is probably going to sound arrogant, and I don't mean it to sound that way. But when you're starting a company, you better be a damn good salesman at selling your company. So. I had, you know, my president who came to me after 24 years at Oracle says I should have started the cult, right? <laughs> and, and he calls, he still reminds me, you know, Greg, he says if you, he calls me Bugsy Siegel because he remembers that thing from the movie where he went out to the desert and said, can't you see it? It's Vegas. Um, so, you know, that, I, I just think that's really, really important at the beginning. So I have seen a lot of, um, you know, founders of, of, you know, ideas that maybe didn't get to the company stage that just, you know, they, they were never going to sell talent on coming to them because I had people, that guy that came to me from Oracle after 24 years, he came for no dollars. I mean, I paid him a $0 salary. He was making, I don't know, six seven $700,000 a year. And I didn't give him a huge chunk of the company, but I, you know, I made it sound like a huge chunk of the company. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I, I think early on, you just better be able to really sell the company and, um, and not just sell it to, you know, anybody, but sell it to the kind of people that you want to attract. Because I was able to build a really fantastic team and I'll, I'll take some credit for that, you know, once what happened happened. I'm going to give a lot of credit to the people that were there, but originally you better, you better be a really darn good salesperson. And then, you know, I would also say just be careful with the equity no matter where, what you're doing with that. You know, I'm, I'm terrible. I was terrible about giving away equity early in the company because I did think it was worth some money. And then I wanted, you know, to maintain equity so that I could give it to people not just to attract talent, but I wanted to give it to people that deserved it once we got to the point where we were successful. So, you know, when we took our investment in June, I wanted to make sure that some of the people that left really amazing jobs to come to work for me 
ended up really financially benefiting from it because it's the right thing to do. So you started off with just it's yours and then started doling it out. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I tried, I don't know where you guys are, but I tried early when I was in idea stage to go out and raise capital. And I'm really glad I didn't get any because, <laughs> you know, I would have been diluted early at a bad mm-hmm. price point. And, you know, for me, what happened was everybody said, well, you know, you're too old. It's, it's government. It's enterprise software. It's not a dating app. You know, <laughs> I mean, there was nobody interested at first for all of these reasons. <laughs> Had nothing to do with the fact that it was a bad idea. <laughs> but, you know, once we started getting customers, then everybody came back in, and it was, it was horrible. I mean, it was not even manageable at that point. But we, we started to look at money like two years in, and then they would, everybody would take so long to do everything, and we were moving so fast. And I was like, well, we just closed another deal. I don't need your money, and I don't need it at that rate. <laughs> so, and they'd say, but, you know, we're, that's what we are talking about. I was like, that's a, that was a month ago. And so we just started growing that way. And, you know, I, I think that was just dumb luck, you know, that my pitch probably wasn't good enough early enough to attract investors. So we had to stick it out and do it ourselves. But um, we, didn't, we ended up paying for it, you know, uh, getting paid off, I think, in the end that way. So did you bootstrap the first two years? Yeah. And was any of that, like when you partnered with the state of Florida, did they help fund that? Were they, uh, so they just shared the- I put over a million dollars of my own money into the business, um, which, uh, you know, if you watch Shark Tank and Mr. Wonderful, he would have told me to take it out back and shoot it a couple times. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, yeah. So I, I put over a million bucks cash in. I didn't take any salary for um, several years. I was all in, um, you know, because I did believe that it was the right thing to do. Um, you know, it was it was hard. It was really hard. It was hard when we started to get bigger. So after I put the initial capital in, when the payroll started to get bigger, and, you know, you have to make payroll, then you're cutting checks and you're going, man, I got another one coming in two weeks. And, you know, you don't want to miss payroll. So that was a really difficult time, um, very stressful. So uh, but, you know, you got to believe, right? My follow-up question is kind of advice for some of the entrepreneurs in the room. It's pretty common, Jeff and I hear it all the time, people come up with an idea, they maybe don't even have an MVP yet, and they want to go talk to investors at that point. And for the most part, they're probably not going to get Money. Do you have any advice for what they should do? Most people don't have a million yeah. dollars here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, hopefully you will after the first one, right? That's that's yeah. the good news. But um, I'm actually I'm sitting on the board of another company that's kind of in that position, and it's been interesting for me to watch. They've built out a product, and they only have a couple of um, beta customers, and we're now taking that out um, to look for some funding. Before pre-revenue, so it's completely different from what I did, and I actually see some advantages and disadvantages to both. So I'll give you guys an example. And so for my company, we were doing in ARR, you know, when we started looking at and some. For those who don't know what that means. Uh, sorry, annual current revenues. Um, so subscription revenues for us when we started to look at um, some potential capital, we were doing about. 7 million in ARR and you know I thought that was pretty good and then 
what ends up happening is then we have companies that are trying to value you on your ARR and just taking a multiple over your ARR. So if you're a services company, it's usually like you know one x. If it's a product, it's about three x. If you're um, a uh, SaaS company, you know maybe six x for the value of the company. But I'm going. What happened was they would just say it was very straightforward. They would just come in and say, okay, you got this, so we're going to multiply it by this. And I'm, you know, I'm exaggerating how straightforward it was. But I'm like, no, we're not going to do that because if that's how you're going to do it, then I'll talk to you in 12 months because we're like this growth. So, you know, if you're trying to value me at $6 million and I know without you I'm going to be at 12 or 15 or whatever, why would I do that deal? So it got really hard. And you know, now I'm on the other side. I'm looking at a company that's actually pre-revenue, and I don't necessarily recommend this because I think it's probably really hard to get funding for a pre-revenue or you're going to give up a ton for it. But that one, there's no revenue, so there's no, like, this six or anything. And so they are kind of, like, putting some value on the idea as opposed to the idea and how it's been validated in the market. So I'm like a really bad pre-revenue kind of person. I think if you're doing revenue and you've got some ARR or MRR, you know, they get to monthly recurring revenues now, then, you know, I think I put a really good deal structure in place for me and for, you know, the people in my company, but it was hard. And we talked to probably 50 PE companies because once you get on their tar- radar screen, they just start attacking. I had to hire a company <laughs> to manage all the inbound, re- you know, um, requests, and and then and then the strategic companies would come out. So you guys know st- strategic, you know, people that just want to come in and buy your whole company. And there were a bunch of those, and it's just it's really hard to run a business when you're trying to trying to find money. So <clears throat> most of the people here, yeah, he knows it who are not. Your Google and Oracle, <laughs> like connect, your, your Google and Oracle connections. How much did that help? The fact that you were there probably meant a lot because it opened doors, right? You know, I don't know the um, Oracle um, and like my background. That helped a ton when I went to go raise money. So when they said, you know, you were at nine years at Oracle, you had a successful career there, you know, that type of thing, that helped a lot. Um, the Google connection helped a ton for opening doors early, right? But that's why you make connections. Um, you know, and I would, I would certainly say my whole thing early was I just didn't want to fight fair because I knew if I fought fair, I would lose. You know, I just had no chance. So I really wanted to do whatever I could to make sure it was unfair. And one of the unfairs was to make sure that Google was bringing me in and, you know, saying this is one of our hot new companies and, you know, you know, What's the guy's name? Sergey Brin? Yeah. He had no idea who I was. So it's not like Google, you know, was promoting me, but someone within Google did with a Google business card. That made a, that made a ton of, of, of impact. I named my company after this guy um, because he really helped, you know, me get started with those types of things. But that's what you do, you know, and I hope to be able to do that for someone else someday, right? Um, now how, how do you go about finding a connection with the government Working with the government, or compliance, software. Yeah, it's horrible. Um, <laughs> it's just unimaginable, unimaginably bad, um, which makes it a great market. Um, you know, because nobody wants to work in government. I'm amazed. I'm like, I can't understand why Sacramento doesn't have a bunch of GovTech startups like us. Um, it just makes no sense to me. Um, and. The reason I say that is, you know, government's 40% of the GDP now. Um, 
or you know, 38 to 40 percent. And when you look at private equity money, like 99.9 percent goes after the other 60 percent, and you know, like 0.01 percent comes after the 40 percent that I'm in. And I look at these PE companies, and I'm like, why are you doing that? And right now, like the guys who invested in us just raised another 550 million dollar fund, and they're going out investing and. You know, they're being very cautious because they're saying there's so much money going after these companies now that PE companies are starting to do dumb things. So that's, a good, that's good for folks like you because they're, they're overpaying, you know, all of these different things. It's mostly good because then there's pressure on you to, you know, really, you know, do things quickly. But, you know, I, so I look at government as this really amazing market. The other reason why I think it's great is because I have way less competition in the government space because it's terrible to deal with you know, with all the compliance and long procurement cycles and all of these other things. And that's part of why I went from 2011 to 2013. Part of it was product. Part of it was just we had to evangelize and get into the market. And then government will say, we really want innovative solutions. And then the bid will come out and say, but it's got to have been implemented for five years. It's not going to work. But you know what? Once you get established, like now that I'm in government, it's so hard for someone to come up from below and beat us. Why would, would any of you guys take me on now? I guarantee you're going to have to work five years to get where we are. <laughs> so it, it just, it's an interesting market. And I, and I encourage you to look at markets that way because I have a very simple market test of when I'm going to go into a market. I've got four little check boxes, and I look at these things, and if one of them doesn't match up, then I'm out. I'm, I'm going to have discipline. I'm not going to go after it because we could have gone after the credit card industry, the financial services, all these things. There was, and it didn't meet my criteria, and I've been a real stick or to that, and I think it's paid well, paid off well. We've had a couple of ladies ask questions. I have a question. Yeah. <laughs> the ladies do it differently. We raise our hand, except me. Uh, <laughs> I started raising your hand to speak. So we have, let's let Carolyn. I'm excited to ask my question, John, so yeah. I'm going to bring you back to the present day. Yeah. So it seems like what you said is the difference between your technology company and your innovation company is really the people. Yes. And now that you've scaled to this size and we're seeing some changes in your management team, yeah. how is your role changing? Uh, yeah, it's awful. No. Um, <laughs> it's true. I, I'm, I think I'm, you know, the whole, like, the entrepreneur that doesn't run the company. Yeah. And, um, You're replacing yourself? <sighs> um, no, okay. not right now. Um, I, you know, I do think you have to kind of look at yourself and say, who are you? Because I've never really enjoyed managing. Um, I'm more of a tinkerer and mentor type of person. And, um, you know, that was really fun when we had like five people and now we have, you know, 75 people. And it's not as fun anymore for me, like personally what I do. So my job has gone from I don't get to see customers as often as I'd like to. You know, I've got a board meeting on Thursday, so I'm preparing the deck and, you know, looking at cash flow and, um, you know, the P&Ls and dealing with partners. And then, like, I just got back from my first vacation in five years. Yay. Thank you. Yeah, that's why I'm tanned. <laughs> um, and uh, I was in Israel, and uh, yeah, it was fun, and, um, and Jordan and, and France for a little bit. And um, I came back, and all I got were the S sandwiches, right? And it was like, here's all the problems. We got blah, blah, blah. And then... Like halfway through today, I heard about these really cool things that had happened while I was gone. I'm like, why didn't anybody tell me about that? <laughs> right? Because it's just that's what happens. That's how your job evolves. But yeah, I mean, it, it's it's different. There's there's 
I have an amazing team. That's, I think, the best thing that I've done individually is I, I built an absolutely incredible team. Um, half, of my, half of my employees exactly as of a week ago are female, so you guys know, which I think is pretty good in technology and law enforcement, right? Um, uh, several members of my uh, senior team are female. Um, we moved one out from Florida who um, is a former DEA agent and law enforcement agent that does all of my delivery So for the country. She's amazing. Um, and so, you know, building a team like that of folks around you, I think is pretty incredible. I do think as a founder, and I was having this discussion, I think, with you earlier, um, you kind of do get stuck because I have so much passion for the company. I have so much history with the company that... Um, you know, just to leave would probably be a really big mistake. And I still have a, I still own a large part of the company. So, you know, for me personally, for the people around me, I, you know, I feel now a burden to make sure that my entire management team is successful. Mm -hmm. And really the success, the big success for everybody will, will be on the next whatever we do. I also, I thought that when I took on private equity money, I, it would be a big relief because I put money in my bank, I put money in the business. What I found was it's just way worse because I, I care for them and they, you know, they, they trusted me, they put money in me. They're a fantastic board that I have and I want them to do really well too. So it's like worse. I, don't, I thought it would be better, but it is. It's worse, but it's, it's self-inflicted worse. So I go to the board meetings. If, if we miss a number, if we make a problem or something like that, my board is fantastic and they're trying to help me, but I feel so much you know, guilt and pressure about it, but you know, maybe not everybody's that way. Other um, question. So everyone's doing obviously. Yes. Yeah. Let's let Carolyn ask her question. Mine will be really quick. Yes. John, if you could take us back a couple years from a product development standpoint, is there anything that you would do differently? Lots of little things, certainly. So. I, um, until about a month ago, I had all the product development under me um, because, you know, it was my vision. I do have a technology background. Um, I do understand the market. Um, I was not a pro I've never been a product manager, um, but I was a, a technical person. Um, and, you know, I, I actually think that was good. So, you know how Warren Buffett used to say, oh, I'd invest in any company except for technology because I don't understand it. And, you know, I understood technology. You know, I don't understand it as well as I'm sure a lot of people in the room, but I understand it pretty well. So I kept all of that for me. So I think I did. A, I think that was smart. I think I did a pretty good job of listening to my customer and not listening to my customer. And that's a really hard sort of line to walk. Um, and, you know, I hear all these things that, you know, you got to listen to your customer, design thinking, design thinking, and then, you know, they're just purely disruptive. I think there's a a combination in there somewhere that you have to do. So I think we did a really good job of that. Um, I think we put in some really interesting development methodologies. We're an agile shop. We're doing weekly sprints. It matches up really well with what we do. Like fraud, fraud changes very rapidly. So we put in an SDLC that I think really um, um, mirrored our, our requirements really well. Um, and I think that was pretty smart. Um, from what would we do differently? Yeah, I mean, lots of little things, but I think we did a good job on the products. We put all of our money into product, so everything that I invested in was into the tech and into the products. We had no salespeople until 
about five months ago. So, you know, everybody was a salesperson, but nobody was a salesperson. But myself and um, Amanda, that woman I was talking about, is the greatest salesperson I've ever seen. She just, she's a member of what we call our 90-50 club, and you get a lot of this at tech. You spent 50% of your time doing what we hired you for and 90% in sales. So, <laughs> and that's just how it works, right? Um, but, you know, I actually think on the product side, we did a, we did a pretty good a pretty so, good like, job. the bucket thing, you don't wish you'd done that sooner? Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, the first 18 months <laughs> and the approach that we took was just plain stupid. I just didn't but know it was stupid at the that? time. Yeah, that was a good idea at the time. But, and I probably should have, um, you know, caught that a little bit earlier and did a little bit of a course correction. But after that, I think we did a pretty good job on the product side. Wait, let's let this guy in oh. the very back, and then I'll let you guys fight it out again. <laughs> <laughs> hey guys, uh, obviously this is not your first startup, but you know, in your experience doing you know four different startups, uh, three and a half, four and a half. Okay, went from one person to a bunch of people, and what, what would you say were your like critical hires? Like, would you say like you needed like oh. a good yeah. COO or COEO or like yeah. what what did you really need to compliment you? Because obviously you're yeah. good at some things and there's other people who are maybe complimenting you. Right? No, so no I'm good at everything. So what were you saying? <laughs> well, not good enough. <laughs> were, like, the most important uh, positions that you had to fill that. Yeah, that's a really good one. So um, um, I can tell you the ones that I, I would have hired earlier, I think, given the choice. And I, I bet I'm like everybody. So Obviously not sales, right? Yeah, well, sales, <laughs> you know, I think the reason why we didn't hire sales early is because we had to build a product. And, you know, salespeople are super expensive, especially in enterprise sales. You know, they are not cheap. And, you know, several of them make more than I do now, which is just fine because I want to pay them a butt ton of money um, because that means that they're going to end up, you know, making me money at some point. Um, but, you know, what I did was I sort of concentrated on that bucket. I knew I needed some really interesting prediction modelers. I knew I needed some really good sort of fraud experts. And, you know, I, and I went to government for that, which was nice because I could get these people at a little bit lower rates, right? Um, and then, you know, I, I knew I needed some really strong technology people. Um, I totally ignored um, salespeople, finance. So I'm an old finance guy, um, and I thought I could do it, which really got hilarious. Um, and, you know, we didn't hire an HR per person. We had, like, no administration at all. And, you know, then when it came time to, you know, start looking at private equity, private equity, they were saying, well, like, you're gap compliant, right? And I'm like, kidding me? I, mean, I don't even know what that means. Man. Like, here's the way we do. We hope to collect all our money up front. I use that and I count how many payrolls I have like I'm in a poker match with lines. So we are not gap compliant. And, you know, HR, we outsourced it. So we, in fact, we still use Trinet. We're, you know, getting to the point where we're probably a little bit, getting a little bit big for that. But um, I outsourced as much as I could of that. Um, then I brought in a um, CFO, um, and I realized how amazing it is to have a CFO. Because I was doing like um, the all of the cash flow projections and things, and I just built like a little, you know, sandbox to be able to say, here's what I know, what's coming in, what if I hire people, what if I get this deal, all that kind of stuff. And that was taking so much of my time, yeah. just managing that because I, you know, I wanted to make payroll, but I also wanted to grow. 
And, you know, at the time I was saying my job was at the end of the month, and I meant this pretty accurately, is for me to be successful, I need to be at like $0 in the bank at the end of the month. Because if I have none, then i got to cut another check for payroll, and this is getting painful. And then if I have too much, then I'm not growing enough and reinvesting in the business. And doing that is a really hard thing. So having a really good person to do that is, and now we don't do that, obviously, but it was, it was really helpful. So for me, you know, I considered sort of my rainmakers to be in that technology and subject matter, that context with the analytics. And I put everything I could into finding the best people in the world for that, um, which I think I did. I think I've, it's the greatest team I've ever been associated with. Um, but I ignored some some pretty key things. We just um, moved into like a full-time HR person. Um, we moved our CFO to COO um, and then hired a, a controller underneath him. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it's probably different for every business, but you know those were the ones that I would probably look at bringing in earlier next time. How many people do you have here? About 75 people full-time. Yeah. Talk a little bit about the evolution of business formation. Did you start off uh, as an S corp or a C corp? What was your exit strategy? Yeah, I tell you, if you if you do have a good idea for a business, do all that stuff right. I did a terrible job on that, and it, I paid for it. It, it was it was really hard when we went to actually do our transaction. All these mistakes that I got from bad legal advice early, because I, I think I told you. I told you. I, I used like a two-person firm. It was barely above like that online legal thing, right, to set up my uh, corporation the first time. Big mistake. I mean, I would definitely say you want to put a little bit of money into setting up the corporation the right way. You know, we started as an S-Corp, but uh, there's so many things that I had no idea, you know, like you don't even know what question to ask. And, you know, you really do need some professional help because when we ended up doing, you know, the transaction, all of this stuff, like, you know, I had given some shares to one person and then we ended up taking them back, but it wasn't documented in the proper way. And, you know, it was documented, but it wasn't in the proper legal way. And that became you know, problematic. And it was just all, I mean, it was like five or 10 things like that, that I thought I was getting good legal advice, but these guys had never done really um, any kind of um, work with a startup company. And it it was a major, major pain. Um, So those were the two big problems for me when I went through due diligence were the gap accounting. But, you know, I just basically said, look, we're not gap, get over it. Just look at our revenues. And even then, the legal company kept coming back and saying, they, they put on, you know, 500 pages of documents you get. And they would say, you are GAP except for these things. And I'm like, no, those are just the examples that I was using. We're not GAP. <laughs> just, we're not GAP. Here's what it is. And then on the legal side was the other one where I think we really just kind of butchered it early. And I would say just be super careful. Don't do any of those, like, do-it-yourself startup things because you're going to end up suffering later, guaranteed. We had some things that almost put the deal in jeopardy um, just because of, of stupid corporate structure stuff that we've done. Two more questions. Is somebody who hasn't asked one yet? I'm totally yapping, too, so I hope some of so this is helpful. Have you had any mentors during this process, especially the first startup or even those two years when you were running the whole show? Yeah, so... Um, mentors. Yes. Um, I don't think you do this by yourself. 
um, and I um, beg, borrow, steal, lean on as many people as I can. Um, you know, certainly the person that I named the company after was um, certainly a mentor, and I've worked for him in the past. Um, and I'm just really upfront about it when I started. I'm like, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to ask you for a bunch of help. And, you know, these are the things that I think I need from you in order to help me make this business. And I'm always shocked at, especially when you go out and you become an entrepreneur, if you have someone in corporate America that's done really well, they all kind of think, man, I wish I'd been an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And I think they're really willing to help you. I'm shocked if you just ask them. So I literally went to my friend at Google and I said, you know, like, I need these things. I need access to your technical team here. I need access to your sales team. I need you to come out. And, you know, this guy was a higher-up guy at Google, not, you know, a head guy, but high enough that his card mattered. And I said, I need you to come out and fly out with me on some key, I'm not going to waste your time, but on some key sales calls, I need you to put your arm on my back and say, yeah, we got these guys, right? And I just told him, here are the four things I need. And we even had to get some product change um, at Google. And he got that done for us. The Predictive API. Cool. Yeah, the Prediction API and some of the things that we were trying to do with it was, um, you know, it was built for like advertising and predicting what people would buy and advertise. And we needed to make some changes on the way um, uh, the models were run. And it was also very like opaque. We couldn't we couldn't make changes to the models, and it would automatically select which algorithm was returning the best results. But we're like, we need more than automatic. We need to understand. So we got those changes done. So he was a, a very important mentor. Um, um, so yeah, and now you know we brought in um, a coach for um, a number of people on my management team that were really interested in receiving some coaching. I'm not interested because I think I'm not going to change. Um, and, and you're right. You're right. <laughs> and, um, it's one of the things that makes me so great. <laughs> but, and, hum and humble. <laughs> right. yeah. We got the last question. One last yet. question. So, uh, we had kind of the same question. Which yeah. Is, if you were going to talk to all of us, as we all have our own ideas, in terms of the criteria of picking the, the best criteria for a product to start a business, what would you start with? Would it be you know, uh, a product that doesn't cost very much money, but it has high yield? Is it one of the criteria you're looking for if you were to start a new business? <laughs> Yeah, you know, I'm probably a terrible person to answer that question because, you know, I'm I'm more just really specific and found you know a solution. I like to find a solution. Um, I can tell you what I look for when I'm entering a market. So I, I mentioned like my four criteria test, and it's going to sound really simple, and you guys are all going to think I'm really stupid after I tell you. <laughs> but it's not the test; it's the sticking to the test and being honest with yourself about it that you know, I think brings some value. So these are the four things that I look for. One is that there's demand, okay? Because I think it's really easy to fall in love with whatever you're doing, but if nobody wants it, then, you know, I, I, I hate to tell you, but go away. So I'll give you an example. Like one of the biggest fraud programs that we look at is um, in government is the National School Lunch Program. So it's about a 30% fraud rate, um, you know, on a very large program, but there's no demand to fix it. So I could fix that, but nobody's going to pay for it because nobody wants it. And the reason is they think that, you know, I'd be stopping kids from eating. But really, the fraud problem is that organized crime comes in and they're charging you and not providing any meals and just ripping off the program. And then kids that do need the food aren't getting it. Okay. But until somebody realizes that, 
not my problem, I'm not going after it. So you have to be very disciplined about that. You might think there's demand, but there's not demand. So demand is, is one. The second, and this is the most trite thing that I could come up with, but I think it's true, is that you have to be able to be disruptive. You know, and for us, especially knowing who I was going to take on, I was going to go after IBM, I was going to go after Accenture, I was going to go after SaaS, these really big companies. If I wasn't like way better than they were, mm-hmm. then we weren't going to succeed. So like we didn't go into financial services and credit cards and things like that because I wasn't sure we could be disruptive in that market. I didn't go into the tax market, like you know revenue taxes, businesses, because I thought there were really established players there. Turns out I was wrong about that one, and we can be disruptive, but you know we were very close. The third for me is that it has to be repeatable. So I was very not interested in doing one-off projects because I knew when it was time for me to get money for my company, if I was doing one-off projects, I wasn't a SaaS company. Then I was a services company or whatever it might be, and then my valuation would be just tremendously different. And that's a really hard one when you're early. Google came to me, for example, and said, do you want to do this city in North Carolina, an apps implementation, just to keep you know money coming in the door? because we're worried about you. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, I'd rather cut, you know, it was going to be $250,000, and instead I cut a check for $250,000 out of my personal money because it was such a big distraction, you know, to the company, and I, I thought it would kill us. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth for me is that there has to be um, funding associated with it. So, you know, if there's demand, if you can be disruptive, it's repeatable, but there's no way for these people to pay for it, either your price points, you know, not going to do it, or... In my case, you know, it has to be funded, you know, like the federal government has to provide funding for it, then, um, you know, we're not going after it. So, like, a good example there is, you know, I follow government policy really closely in the Farm Bill, like, mm-hmm. didn't pass just, I think that was last week or a couple of days ago. So that's um, food stamp fraud, which is now called SNAP. We have the greatest solution in the world for that when there was funding and we got it into as many states as we can. Now there's no funding for it, so we're not going after it because mm-hmm. they want it. We're way better than anybody else at it. There's a big problem. It's Every state's got the problem, but there's no way for them to pay for it. So, you know, we avoid it. So that that's my thing. Um, you know, and if something passes that test, then I think there's a, a pretty good chance. But, you know, I think you got to validate that, and you can't just have it in your head because you can make some mistakes on, on something even as simple you as that. you have to have four? I need all four. Because you know what? I, you know, and, and hopefully it's like this for you guys. For me, there's 2,300 federal subsidy programs. I don't know if you guys knew that. There's 2,300 of them. So if I can't get a few that meet all four, then I got a problem, right? So I just look for the ones that, you know, that are big and meet all four of those. And if you meet three, you're out. And, you know, maybe next year we'll take a look at it. Very good. All right. Thank you.